0: Welcome to another edition of the Agile Uprising Podcast. I'm your host, James Gifford and I'm joined tonight from two wonderful folks from Scrum.org, and they're here to talk to us about evidence-based management. And so coming to you from Balmy, Boulder, uh, why don't you introduce yourself, Kurt?
2: I'm Kurt Bittner. Um, I have done tons of things. I think uh, next year it'll be 40 years since I got out of college and started doing quote real work, um, like the work I was doing before wasn't real, I guess. Um, and and uh, what really interests me at this point in in my life is um, kind of pushing a lot of the assumptions that organizations make and and challenging the way that they think about what they're delivering. and we'll talk more about that later. But anyway, uh, you know this uh, thanks for having us on and uh, I think it'll be an interesting chat
0: and we'll, we'll take, and we also have Patricia Kong with us and I really haven't seen Patricia since probably about 2016 at the hard adjunct conference in Philly and it's been oh. it's, it's, it's been <laughs> it's honestly been that long since we've actually
1: talked to yeah um well hey um, so I'm Patricia Kong. I am based in the Boston area. Um, Kurt Bittner and I are basically yin and yang at um thinking about, um, oh, what do we call, call it now, enterprise agility. And um, I am a recovering corporate-aholic, <laughs> authoritarian-aholic. Like, who's the power? Who would I have to bow to? And steal power from. That's that's what I'm trying to recover through every day. Um hey,
0: playing yeah. the corporate game is it's that that is chess with real people. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm I'm more of like a checkers kind of lady. So, I I love
0: so. Me some checkers. <laughs> so awesome. So you know I'm I'm kind of really drawn to to this topic and the and the content that you guys put out around this. Um I've been working with a lot of organizations over the years, kind of with my own kind of metrics framework that we really about flow metrics and focusing on outcomes, and then you know where teams at with practices and things like that. And I think that you guys are you know kind of timely with with bringing this to market. Like it it has a lot of good content that really gets people focused on you know making decisions with data. And having the right data to kind of achieve goals. Um, and so I find this topic really interesting because it's been my like coaching kind of stance. Not that I do actually much coaching. I just point out problems and then help them fault- solve it. But I think that this approach to to kind of management and leadership is is in the right way, at least in in my heart and and where I gravitate to. so, I would love to kind of just really have a conversation with you guys about it tonight and you know we'll kind of just kick it over to to Kurt or Patricia you guys fight it out. Uh, Who wants to kind of start and maybe you guys could kind of just give us some a little bit of history around this. um,
2: yeah. Um, Well, actually, um, Patricia's work goes back to sort of the beginning ideas on it so. um, Maybe she could talk about where it came from and then. Um, you know, I can I can dovetail in with that when we start talking about where we've taken it over the mm-hmm. last couple of years and why we've we've moved in that direction.
1: Yeah, so um I'll try to make this quick. So once upon a time, 10 years ago, when I joined about uh, when I joined Scrum.org, Ken Schreiber was working on something called the continuous improvement framework and thinking about, you know. Uh, enterprise scrum and how can we grow this throughout the organization and at that time scaling the topic of scaling became really really popular right like everybody was scrum is this and then everybody said oh everybody needs to be trained up in Scrum. we all need to be agile and let's let's scale and he said hey wait a second um if you're going to be doing that how do you know that that's the right thing to do um and what 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 evidence do you have? How do we actually inspect and adapt at an organizational level or just what you're doing, right? And so the continuous improvement framework at that time seemed um, a little too early, but the notion of how do you, are, are you are you actually, how do you know that Agile is actually working for you was the impetus of his conversation. And it also was, if you're gonna spend a ton of money train up 3000 people or 35 teams or 250 teams, um, don't you want to know that you're actually going in the direction that makes sense and, and, and in pursuit of what so we just talked about measurement we we're talking about measurement for a while and we published the EBM guide. And at that time there were um, three key value areas that we thought about which was current value where's the organization uh, now in terms of you know what you have your employees your customers. And then your time to market and your ability to innovate. How would, you, how would you look at those three things? And at that time, it was like, great. Okay, so we're measuring those things. And then, and then people would be like, okay, Patricia, we're measuring. This is really cool. What metrics do we use? And it kind of lost the point of what the measurement was for. And we thought that if people were thinking that they would inspect, that maybe they would thought, think about how they would improve off of that. And then probably around that time, stage left, comes Kurt Bittner. And I said, you know, Kurt, we have this problem. And uh, we started talking about um, unrealized value, which is, you know, can the corporation or can the teams think get out of their own way and actually think about what's going on outside of the organization start thinking about outcomes and then, and then adding that, that bit of um, empiricism back into it. So Kurt, if you wanna add from there, that might be
2: helpful. Yeah, um, so so for me, um, prior to coming to scrum.org, I, I spent three years at Forrester Research. And when I was there, I was covering things like DevOps and agile and other things. And I got really interested in, in things like value stream mapping and, and analyzing that. But what also got me thinking uh, w- when I encountered EBM was that the So we have this concept of current value, but there's this fundamental question when you're thinking about investing in, you know, product A or product B or initiative A or initiative B, is how much is good enough. And so, you know, the the traditional problem that a lot of product managers and product owners have is that they just keep adding features. And, you know, most of those features actually don't do anything. Um, there's there's some really interesting data that suggests that, you know, a third of the ideas that organizations have, this, this is Microsoft and Google and Amazon and, you know, pretty sophisticated organizations. A third of their ideas are good. They produce positive value. or They, they achieve the things that, that they were trying to achieve. A third of the things don't do anything. And a third of the things actually make things worse. So what that says is that two thirds of the investment that these pretty successful organizations are making has no value or negative value. So it got me thinking, and as I read things like Lean UX and some other other things, it got me thinking about, well, what you're really trying to do is you're trying to close a satisfaction gap that the customer has. And so the customer has the gap, and this gets back to some of the theory behind jobs to be done and outcome-driven innovation. And that the customer has this problem, whether you do anything or not. Now, your competitor might do something, but um, you know. So, if you look at at what you're trying to do as an organization, is you're trying to close these satisfaction gaps and hopefully monetize that closure, and that's how you're successful. So, we, we thought about, you know, how do we? We've already got current value. We don't really want to mess with that because that's still an important thing. So, let's add this concept called unrealized value, which. For some people, it's really hard to wrap their heads around. How do you measure something that's not there? But in fact, there are a variety of ways that you can measure that. Um, I used to work for for a big software company and um, you know, we, we did trials. Um, people tried out the product and and you could, in a sense, measure unrealized value by looking at how many people who tried your product actually bought it and use that as a proxy for the, you know, the, the unrealized value of, if most of, if many people didn't buy your product, there's obviously something missing from your product that they didn't get, or maybe they got from another product. And so, so trying to, to measure that unrealized value, you might measure it with, with, you know, as in a coarse grained way with market share, you might measure it by surveys, you might measure it by, um, you know, actually instrumenting the application, but there's a variety of ways to measure unrealized value. And that gives you something that you can now base organizational goals off of so the the other thing that we added in 20 starting in 2016 um, and with the release that that we came out with last year i guess it was um was we added this notion of goals and and before our talk um before we started the podcast we uh we were chatting just amongst the three of us about um mike rother's improvement kata so you know i really liked that that idea that he expressed in there and so we kind of grafted the goals part of it onto this notion of these key value areas to to understand so strategic goals if they're expressed in terms of unrealized value that gives the organization something to shoot for over the long term and then intermediate and short-term goals can be based on things like it could be based on value but it could also be based on well, classic example of most organizations, they don't deliver very quickly. And so you might you might discover that you have a large unrealized value that you wanna close, but if you're only shipping it once every nine months, you're not going to close that very fast. And so your intermediate goals might be more around improving cycle time or what we call time to market um, or something around ability to innovate, which is essentially measures of effectiveness. Like, you know, how how much, in a sense, you know, how much bang do you get for your buck? Um, you know, how, how effective you are at each release and delivering value. Um, so the classic problem uh, of ability to innovate is stuff like interruptions. So if, if, if you're attending meetings 90% of your time and you're only working on valuable things 10% of your time, then your ability to innovate is going to be low. And each release that you do to customers is perhaps only going to move the value needle just a little bit each time because you're not able to... Achieve focus. Anyway, I kind of rambled a bit.
1: (laughs) Well, the thing I want to add there, um, Kurt, just that ability to innovate is that when I was actually I was in I was with a client in Asia, and what you're talking about is you know we know these things, and I think meaning we're the teams, or we we know that we're we're fixing things 90% of the time. But there, what I found was interesting, um, and especially you know when you think about talking about metrics or these kind of things, they're they're there to spark a conversation, right? So what I care about is that there's a holistic look at it. But the interesting thing that I found is that the people who set the numbers and the budget and that assumption, they think one thing is happening. Money is being spent a certain way and it's not actually until you dive into actually what are we doing and why is it that you can see there's this this diff and and, and that conversation is is something that I've seen EBM help. some clients just kind of trigger those, those conversations with business leaders.
0: Well, you look under the hood and see how people are charging back codes in the old accounting system. <laughs>
1: uh-huh. And then
0: I tell you, I've spent, and you know, I've had to run the, the gamut of a lot of things. I, you know, the last company I was out as the director of processing tools. So I, I saw everything. We, we helped set up the agile PMO, which is kind of an oxymoron there, but um, we set up our agile PMO. We, you know, we, I had to own both the SPLCs. I had to work with the lady that did all the kind of, you know, we did we did some basic venture style funding, and so I'd have to help the project managers figure out where all the money was going, and then how the chargeback codes were being applied. And I'm like, you've over created a complexity mess here. But what it what it really did was, is it allowed us to really see what people were really doing, or confused about how they were doing? And it allowed us to kind of go, wait, time out. There's a whole lot better way to do some of this accounting stuff, uh, and still be in compliance with CapEx and Optex. So we were able to, you know, kind of modify the processes there to allow the teams to spend less time doing time entry and more time actually writing the software because it was it was a waste. But it's kind of and I it's without looking at how money rolls up and 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 most but the average agile coach isn't or average scrum master isn't going to be exposed to that so I guess how do you get leaders thinking this way, because I can tell you that the leaders weren't thinking about how somebody was charging time, and then how it impact their ability uh, how much time they were basically wasting on correct or project managers were wasting correcting time or we were showing too much CapEx or too much OpEx and mm-hmm. anything like that so. <clears throat> You know, I think this is all super interesting in, in the data and the measures, but it's like, how do you get this into the right hands at the at the right level? Yep. I and mean, to me, a lot of this feels like it's gonna you're this is more for the organization, and you kind of touched on that really in the while we were start before we started recording. I think with all the buzzwords around OKRs and everybody focused on OKRs and most of the OKRs I've seen are just doing stuff. It's the right. in your in the thing. It's it's about activity or output. Yep. So right. most of the OKRs I've seen to date were are, are based on the activity or output and not actually outcome focused. So right. does, does your is the are the goals kind of targeted at re, like a replacement for OKRs? Do they work with it?
2: Yeah. Well, um, yeah, so um, we'll sort of un- we'll unwind that by talking about OKRs first, is that um, OKRs, if you focus them on outcomes, could be a really useful thing. You know, they said, here's an outcome that we'd like to achieve, and this is the evidence that we would see, we would expect to see if that outcome has been achieved. Now. That, that establishes a really useful way of having a discussion about what's important, and it would be useful for Scrum teams and or Agile teams in general to understand that so they can pick the right product backlog items and they can then work on the right things. Um, the problem, is you, as you mentioned, is that many OKRs are based on activities or outputs, and so it's basically, you know, do these things, you know, the OKRs do these things, or, the or, or the you know the OKRs somewhat fl- fluffy and and the key results are do these things or it's produce these things and you have no idea the, the teams have no idea why they're producing those things or doing those things so it's not helpful so so OKRs could be useful but sort of winding it back to your original question um, the you know we often go into organizations and we'll ask the question why is it that you're doing this agile initiative and we often get an answer that's something like well we want to go faster um, or we want to be more responsive or we want to you know be more efficient sometimes and like good consultants we apply our five wise technique and we say great why do you want to do that what what will going faster do for you and then, you know, it, it start, they start to, you know, actually they're a little confused at first sometimes because of' like, well, nobody's asked that. But eventually we get around to something that says that, well, you know, we feel like our, you know, our customers are going, going to run away to another competitor if, if we don't, you know, if we're not able to keep pace with their expectations or something like that. And now we're onto something that goes back to that unrealized value concept. So we try to help them reframe their goal not as going faster, being more efficient, but actually being more effective at delivering value. And now we can now we now we've established um, you know a, a conversation that we can kind of work with them to to help them think about things in in evidence-based management terms. And so we might say, well, how would you recognize you know how would you recognize that you've been successful? What, what evidence or what measures would tell you that you're being successful at that? And often also that, that results in some confusion because they're not really sure how to do that, but at least we're now having a conversation about what would success look like instead of just being agile and adopting some superficial practices, like, you know, everybody's standing up at eight o'clock in the morning. Well, great. You know, um, uh, but, uh, Anyway, so so it's mostly about trying to reorient the, the conversation towards real measures of value that are usually based on on some customer measure of satisfaction instead of some internally focused um, way of working.
1: Yeah, um, I'll share what I've seen is um, like so OKRs are back. We know that, and the. Um... The interesting thing is that, you know, like Kurt said, if OKRs are used well, that's great. But a lot of people they go, oh, OKRs. This is a way. This is how I'm going to talk to management now. I can get that in, or this is a way management is going to communicate everything they want. So there's there's that. I'll just hit on the, the 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 risky side of it, and all the things that we talk about when we're saying, hey, how does how do we make sure that this aligns division? How is this empowering anybody? A lot of that gets lost. So I've been talking to teams and they'll say, you know, we've just been given OKRs and we're doing that. And there's no empiricism because the problem is, is that there's an assumption that that O is correct, right? So we're not actually learning to see, even if that was an outcome, we're not learning to see what's correct. So to to see if we need to adapt and especially in the times during the pandemic, I don't know I wouldn't call this post-pandemic anymore, but the the there's really been something serious about how are we investing our money, how are we investing our time, what do we think about, how do we think about that step by step, and and and, and EBM uh, throughout the years, you can see that we've avoided aligning it up to saying you must use Scrum to do this, it must be Agile, and it is is this something that's fancy, is this for the question that might come in is: Is this for who does this? Is this product owners? Is this scrum masters? Is this coaches? Is this management? Is this just management porn? And I would say yes. So you would you would look at um, we've seen we've seen a way that um, this information has allowed execs to. To get away from looking at just dots and lines on a graph and they're looking at the progress of a product which is amazing and they can see that the teams understand that you know when you give them this wafty goal, now they understand they're making progress towards something rather than kicking out w- wikis but um i'm trying to find a way to gracefully insert this into the podcast but it's a way to talk to people i think about you know evidence doesn't just mean data but it's better than you know just what did I just do? Put my finger up and see which way the wind's blowing. But it's also a way to avoid that notion like where agile has just become an overused term. Like you were saying, um, James, about how you say empiricism to somebody and their 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 eyes glaze over. And um, I like to joke about how agile has become a dirty word like asshole. So there's another way to just talk about um, yeah. actually what are we trying to do here, right?
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree. I'm, I mean, I'm, a, I'm, all, I'm all done with agile um, No. <laughs> much. i'm not gonna lie um but you know it's kind of it's, it's really interesting and at the last company we were we were talking about a lot of challenges and we instead of trying to we i mean we had a we had a you know a glacier of a middle management layer and instead of trying to you know just blame everything on all the slowness of the transformation on the middle management we said we need to we need to we need to take we need to do something about it we need to work on the culture we need to help people because matrix management there wasn't really good either so like the, the the leaders didn't know what to do they're like what do you mean i am supposed to coach people i'm i'm no skills in being able to coach people i i, I fight fires and i tell people what to do that's that's my my job i'm the pointy head of manager and we were so we, we got talking about it. we got to listen to their fears and some of the stuff that we did was we, we were focused on the cultural transformation and when we sold it to the, the executive, it was our, our measure of success was the organization would feel different. There's, there would be less friction. There would be less people infighting. There, you would see more collaboration. And that's, that's how we sold the measurement of, of what this thing was gonna look like. And you know, in pure skepticism, you know he he just said fine just, just, just you you go do it and you know the interesting thing is is a year and a half later and 10 trips to india um and start, we we've circled the globe on that one you know the organization did feel different and he could actually say when i'm in this office it which is that that you can tell how long ago that was that was circa end of end of 2019 but he's like, when I, go to a, when I go to a site and I just see the people, I see the way that people are interacting, I interact with the managers, I can actually sense it. Like the organization feels different. And he's like, so you guys weren't totally wrong. And he's like, this is the first time I've ever had a you know a non-qualitative kind of measure thrown out to me as a, mm. as a degree of success.
1: Well, that so um, we actually uh, launched a class around EVM or workshop, whatever, virtual uh, in July. And one of the, th- the exercises or the, the considerations that we ask people to think about um, that you just brought up is the notion of people. Because it's not just heart. People go, oh, what metrics do we have? Okay, what is that relationship if we can get beyond? What is that relationship between metrics and the goals? What does that look like? And then we've said, wait, human beings are complex. What is the relationship between the measures that you have the people and their behaviors and the goals. What would that look like? And how would that change if you're just pushing down on a system? What behaviors would you expect? If people, you know, like there, there's a really interesting relationship there. And when I talk to that, to, uh, when we talk about that with the execs, they go, oh, I never thought about that. Like those three dimensions. And then you can see there's this outside force of this is what really uh, reflects the values of an organization. So that relationship that you are just talking about right there, like the goals, measures, behaviors, and the values um, is super special. Yeah.
2: The, the, there's another thing too that, um, you know, relating to culture is that, um, I mean, people aren't completely motivated by money and rewards and things like that, but they, they are to some degree. And so, you know, a lot of success in, in, in an initiative, you know, if it's, deci- if it's, if success is defined in terms of on time, on budget, there's nothing about value in that. It's two made up numbers, two, two numbers literally pulled out of the air that don't mean anything. You know, somebody guessed that, you know, it would take this much time and somebody guessed that it would take this much money, but what, if you reorient the measures of success to be, you know, we want to close the satisfaction gap, or, or maybe even more conc- concretely, we want to deliver these particular outcomes to customers that we think are are, um, are, are, are going to help the help us be successful, then you figure out ways to measure those things. And you can tell whether the initiative or the thing you're working on was successful you know, but if, you know, you ask people, well, you delivered it on time on budget was a success success. And virtually everybody says, I don't know, um, maybe, you know, and so that that's sort of the problem that I think a lot of organizations still who, who are doing, you know, at least from an activity standpoint, doing good things around things like DevOps and continuous delivery. And, you know, they've automated lar- large parts of the delivery pipeline, but if all they do is count successes, you know, delivered and shipped, but they have no idea whether what they delivered was useful. They're kind of missing an opportunity that that could motivate people and bring people together and help to start changing that culture. Because when you, you start getting everybody circled around doing good things for the customer and, and there are measures that support whether you actually achieve something. Um, Trish has a, a great story from, from uh Colleague, colleague, that she that she works with more than I do. That um, you, you might want to tell that one about the the teams that you know were were greatly motivated because they actually had some goals that they could work against, and um, that that, that, that might <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and and story. and so and so the, the the thing was to to make it more concrete is that you know before this organization had very very vague you know the usual mission statement type of goals. You know we want to be the best. You know, provider of services in our industry, and it all sounds wonderful, but it's all BS um, because there are no measures of what the best is, um, and you can't actually target that. But when they came up with concrete measures that were oriented around customer outcomes, now the teams are like, "Hey, wait a minute! I, you know, i got this idea how we could do that. Oh, you know, I've got another idea how we could do that." And they start getting more engaged. And so, you know, you could measure the employee engagement, and you can measure the progress yeah. against that goal. And and it, it's not just that. The goal was being achieved, but actually things like engagement and, and, and employee satisfaction were much higher because they now felt part of something instead of just feeling like they're cogs in the machine that, you know, you're turning up stuff and you have no idea whether yeah. anyone's ever using it.
1: And uh, Kurt and I used to work at um, in research, and it's like we know we know that data of uh, oh, organizations say agile transformations really working well, but the teams have no clue what the goal or the strategy is. And I, I actually want to take this in a different direction. I'm curious what 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 you're thinking about or seeing, James, because you work with some big companies, but. Um, There's a PST when we're talking about evidence-based management, what she referenced and alluded to was the fact that in today's market conditions, she thinks that um, to achieve strategic goals or to achieve something like that, right? So the way that we think of outcome driven, uh, outcome-based goals, that empiricism is the only sustainable form of leadership. And I'm wondering, do you see that notion at all in the organizations you work uh, with from a leadership perspective? Um, where they're starting to say you know what this this we need to lead and think in a different way and also from um, I don't even want to say teams and high-performing teams but but from individuals are they engaged anymore right we've we've gone through some heavy crap over the next the last two years and so people are probably starting are asking themselves is this worth it and so is there I know it's like oh I'm lucky to have a job but there's also the notion that I'm seeing is I need to choose what's gonna worth it and so are those goals becoming more relevant
0: so so i mean empiricism is a critical success factor in most of the organizations that we're at it's do they have the right understanding the right measures the right way to communicate you know the big value word there Um, so we're, working on a, we're working on a project right now with some of the teams that I'm kind of aligned to and help kind of supporting and their OKR is tied to replacing the top 75% of the traffic pages in there in a portion of the, of the website that's behind the, the login. Um, and on the surface. Like, that is, it's so demotivating for everybody. They're like, this goal is stupid. It's not manageable. It's, we can't hit it. And, and, but the problem is, is the sales pitch, all they're really seeing and all they're hearing around it, the key results is that they're retiring web pages, they're moving to AWS and serverless uh, front end, which is super cool. They like the technology part, they like that they're learning new skills. But the piece that never made it to them and the communication paths around why we needed to do this, they, they didn't get that. They don't actually know the value that replacing these web pages are, are, are getting to. They didn't, if you're, if you're a new developer, most of the teams that they brought in are from a different area of the business and they did it through like a casting call, like, hey, we've got these opportunities, come join us. Or they hired from outside. And so you got these people that have no context of the system what the, the history of it is. And it turns out that there's literally three versions of the website that are out there. And we're not talking like little versions of the website. We're talking full failover redundancy. So like if your new modern cloud awesomeness died, you could go right back to DB2, all the old monolithic garbage and, and be running in two and a half hours. That's how long it takes to sync the data back. Uh, unless you lose the database and then you're bumped. But in the grand scheme of things, so they're, they're not looking at the fact that the company's literally just bleeding millions of dollars a year with teams to BAU it, teams to support it, teams to keep it up with the Joneses. Um, and so like, th- because they were not connected, like the goal is good. The goal is gonna save the company a large number of money, amount of money it's gonna allow them to move faster in the long run. That all they see it is is I'm killing web pages for the for the company and when you can reframe it for them that yes what you're doing kind of sucks because you're rebuilding web pages in the long run you're going to be able to go faster here's the roadmap of all the cool stuff that and uh, the net promoter score goals that we need to solve because we're we have a lot of high bounce rate different all those different kind of things that are on the roadmap that you can't get to till table stakes are done and so, like, I sat a group of them down and I went through this and I kind of showed them it all. And they're like, oh, well, all I get from my leader is we're replacing the web pages and we're going to serverless and AWS. And I'm like, well, oh, I'm sorry that your leader can't explain to you the value of your job and the work that you're bringing to the company. And the fact that what you're doing now is kind of linchpin stuff that if we don't do this, this other kind of firm that starts with an F and ends with a, you know, Adelity is going to come in with <laughs> um, Or, or Robin Hood's going to come and, uh, you know, their, their mobile app is going to take your younger generation of investors away. So, like, there's a lot of these people that they're not actually connected enough in the organization to understand why, even if the why isn't kind of showed to them. Um, and so that's where I see the leaders kind of really falling down, is that, disconnect. And because they're disconnected, because of, of you know, some of, some of it has some deadlines around it, which weren't good. So you put a deadline on it, that they have no inspiration on why they should care about doing it. And so now you've got a bunch of dissatisfied people that are, you know, just kind of going through the motions. We'd, once we started connecting some of those dots around why the importance of it, the fact that we're building for the future, there are it was about a 50 50 kind of pivot
1: yeah 50 percent
0: um, of them still hate it and the other 50 percent are like oh crap they're yeah. right we we need to do this so yeah
1: it's kind of like oh why do i need to drink water like at least you understand it um and it's healthy for you but it's, it's the most exciting thing it, that's a that's a connection that i've heard a lot between you know how are we using okrs and scrum and how did ebm help improve that because there was this notion around the outputs versus outcomes so what you're talking about the goals we talk about that coming from unrealized value we're trying to look at a, a, an opportunity there i think between a problem and a solution is that value and or should we close it and um and ebm usually comes back and says okay well how are you going to measure to know that this is working and, and if we should move because we were talking to a client and a bank, same same thing, where they wanted to replicate the entire website onto a mobile app, and then they actually studied what the c- c- customers did. And they said customers don't want to do that; we're wasting our money here. And they they were they were able to, to do things a lot quicker and save a lot of money. That was interesting but, for the teams. So. And
2: that and that brings up a, an important part of EBM that we haven't talked about is that um, so basically every improvement cycle, which in Scrum terms, would be a sprint. Um, every improvement cycle is really a, a kind of experiment that you're running about value, or about your organizational capability to deliver value. So, in the example that you just gave, James, um, or or and actually tying with what Trish said, is that um, the you know if you if you took a sprint or two and did that experiment to say what if we did convert all of these things to serverless. And, you know, we retired a bunch of web pages and whatever. Would that actually help us achieve the organizational goal? And the answer you get might be, yeah, great. And in which case you do more, or it might be, no, we really, we found out we need to do something different and it's not that important. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of assumptions that organizations make about what the right thing to do is. And, and this is sort of the flaw about OKRs is that um, the, the usual assumption that people make about OKRs is that the objective is right. And, you know, the performance against the objective is the thing that could fall short, but actually you might find that, you know, if you, if you run an experiment, the objective isn't the right objective either. And you need to kind of reject that and improve your objective to, to be focused on the right thing. And so this notion of inspecting and adapting both results and the goals is really important and so this experiment loop is really a way of testing that or you know we we use the term experiment loop because we wanted to make it not dependent upon scrum but you know if if you think about you know the experiment loop being a sprint you know you have a sprint goal and then you do some things and you you check to see whether you know do we achieve that goal and one of the questions that you ask in the sprint review is that was that the right goal you know how do we do against the goal but maybe that wasn't the right goal either um, and we learned some things that tell us we, we could do better, uh, have a better goal next sprint, and then you improve it. So um, trying to get organizations to think that, you know, their the the leadership assumptions might be wrong and the goals might be wrong. And this is a way of testing those things too, not just basically having goals come down from on high and then the teams are like, you know, yes, sir. You know, we right away, sir. And all that sort of thing. Um, so anyway, uh, that, that's, that ends up being really important and not, Everybody, not every organization is open to that because, you know, a lot of traditional organizations are used to having leaders sort of act unquestioned. Um, but opening them up and say, look, you know, not everybody is going to be right all the time and it's OK to learn from things. And, you know, I, I think one of the brilliant things about if you've seen that video about SpaceX, um, you know, and, and the, the, the landing failures on, on the Falcon rocket, and whatever, and what they learned each time. Um, it's just, it's just brilliant. And then finally, at the last time when they landed perfectly, you, you know, there's tears and everything else, but um, that, that being open to testing your assumptions, I think is, is really important to improving business performance overall. Not, not just, you know, looking at, at agile teams as being, you know, just focused on execution and, and the orders come down from, from leadership. Uh, the information needs to flow both ways.
0: No, I totally agree with you. And I, I think one of the interesting things is, is you didn't call out, you know, a sprint. You didn't really hit on the, on the time box. But every good experiment, every kind of, in a lot of all this stuff, it should be time box, time-based. Um, so logically, it does fit into an organization. Um, and which is, we also have some of those kind of interesting challenges where, you know, we're, we're starting to kind of push people to a, a, a common cadence, a common, you know, 250 teams working on one clock, uh, which has had its own interesting issues, but even having the Kanban team starting to calculate their cycle time and throughput on that same time box, they still hold the retros and, the, and some, you know, reviews during those same kind of time boxes. So having, a, having an actual rhythm, having an understanding of an experiment horizon, how long is this thing gonna run You know, do we stop it early if we're seeing like failure patterns? I think that that's like that's one of the kind of critical things that you know. The last place at the company before this one, we sat down and when we defined an experiment, we defined what is the failure scenario. So if we're not at around this point and we're not seeing these results, it's probably time to look at it and pivot. And I think that that's one of those kind of key important things for folks to realize that you're not going to get your experiments right all the time. You're going to have to understand how long generally some of these changes or some of these experiments don't happen overnight. So what is that longest responsible window that you can have to evaluate your experiment? Mm, Um,
1: that sounds like, a, I mean, that sounds like common sense in life too, right? Like when you think you, about
0: it, it just makes sense. You, well, you would think so. But like, <laughs> I literally have to explain this to 55-year-old executives that have two master's degrees and have been in, you know, a leader of product for the better part of 40 years. And it's well, like- You could
1: say like, sir or madam, if you're not here, you won't be able to retire by the time you're 60. I'm sure you have something in place. No, I'm kidding. But the... um. I think that the thing you're bringing up about time boxes is really important because uh, when Ken Schwaber, um, he and I were just talking last week about this, but there was, we were talking about scaling a while back and we were just having this conversation again. And somebody had told him, our goals are too big and broad, like they can't fit into 30 days or less, whatever. And he said, well, you're, you're breaking empiricism. How else are you gonna know? And that's that, I don't know if you called it a dirty word or nasty word or the word value, like how will you know? Um, if you don't have that that cadence and we just talk about at least there must be a common denominator are they always on two weeks no but should they be able to sync at some time yes because we need to to have that
0: up, up to a uh, month you, you get a month then yeah. uh, no. well,
2: well, <laughs> well this this was one of the reasons why in EBM when we we did that kind of grafting with improvement card ideas is that you know strategic goals you know, usually over kind of a three to five year horizon. And of course, that doesn't fit into a, a two week sprint or a four week sprint. Um, intermediate goals might be somewhere between a quarter, quarterly and a year, but you've got something equivalent to a sprint goal or a short term tactical goal that needs to be sort of every two to four weeks. And so, you know, you're using empiricism to seek towards longer term goals. So, you know, you, you, you know, life wouldn't, wouldn't work very well if you simply had short-term, you know, I've I've got a goal for this week, right? Nothing beyond that. Um, But it also doesn't work very well if you've got, you know, I've got a a goal in five years to, you know, have a PhD in something, but, you know, I have no idea what I'm doing the next week or the next two weeks. Um, So so we felt like those three timescales actually Worked rather well, especially with most organizations. They need quarterly goals, but they need something bigger than that. But they also need something smaller than that that's more tactical that you could do in a sprint or in a couple of weeks to, to test some of your ideas. And and then you're sort of inspecting and adapting and seeking toward these goals and adapting the goals, like we talked about earlier. Um, so yeah, it's a, that that's why that three level of three levels of goals ended up being we felt like an important thing that you know you kind of need all three of them to actually tie it together.
0: No, no, I like the levels of goals and the description in the guide. I think it's, it's really well. I don't like that the names are close together. It's the short, t- it's that tactical. Yeah. Um, it's, I like the people that I work with will literally be like drooling on themselves and confused and, and telling <laughs> me that I'm confused. I don't know what you're talking
1: about. Well, if you, you have some suggest- suggestions.
0: Uh, yeah, I don't know. You can always
1: I'm just... Tell them, with- tell you and your friends and the zombies just uh, send Kurt Bittner, and even, I'm kidding. contact. <laughs> we'll,
0: well, here's Kurt's email. Just email
1: him your suggestions. Just just uh, email Kurt. He's he's waiting. But it's he's you all. know it, <laughs> I, I we, we, we need
2: to find that. the email equivalent of DevNull.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I know I know we're kind of coming up on the the time box here, but I did want to just br- kind of send this out on the whole value note and and it's kind of being a dirty word i think it's more that people confuse like what is value everybody describes it like our industry has polluted the word value um well not necessarily you guys but but everybody else like i was literally in a demo today with with sitting there looking at lean kit and since plain view bottom i'm not sure what happened it's still pretty good it's not as good as the old days but like I'm literally looking at a screen that's showing about the you know the super value calculating wizard machine where you put in your features and you fill in the you know these ten checkboxes and then voodoo and magic happens and then you get a value score and this thing is valuable because it's ninety nine points and this one's not as valuable because it's sixty two points and I'm like, WTF people, this isn't value. And no, it's not, but it
1: sounds really fun and easy.
0: It is. Aha okay. uh-huh. has the same kind of thing built into their product. And I'm like, people, this is not I, I rem- value. Like we need a good definition of value that people can adopt and live with.
2: Well, I so so value calculators like that. I I, uh, I sometimes joke that they're they're derived from this branch of mathematics that's known as numerical proctology. <laughs> Uh, so uh yeah they pulled numbers out of somewhere um that that, that's the one thing i I think that we tried when we talk about value we try to focus on the satisfaction gap as being sort of the the source of value creation and so it's really based on um desired outcomes that customers have whether they concretely understand them so an example that I, i sometimes bring up you know, for those of us who remember when the first iPhone came out, you know, one of the the comments was from the business community is like, people will never use that because it doesn't have a keyboard. And you know, the the people over at uh, at, at BlackBerry were saying the same thing, like, you know, you know, well, well, we're secure because it doesn't have a keyboard. Well, it turns out that people didn't really want a keyboard; they just want an easy way of interacting with things. And and what they actually valued more was having you know a nice interface to web content. Um, so they were willing to do swiping and you know, virtual keyboards on the screen and all that because that that satisfied their their desired outcome adequately, actually better than BlackBerry did. Um, so so this notion of of desired outcomes I think is is more useful because it's something that that you can then translate into discussions about or or inject into discussions about. Well, how do we close that gap? If there's this satisfaction gap, first of all, how do we test that it's actually real? And two, how do we close that gap? And so, um, yeah, I, I wish I wish we had a, a better term about value, but yeah, any kind of you know pointing score or weighted, you know, weighted scores on product backlog items—it's like no, that's that's just. I mean, the the problem with estimate. So there's there's a problem with estimates is that I, I love this. There was there's some guys who had a blog a while ago and they, they, I don't know if they're still doing it. I should be embarrassed about that, but it was uh, the, the, the blog was 39 signals or something like that. And so they, they produced this book and it was like, you know, really nice, easy read. And one of their, their topics said that basically um, estimating is guessing, which was a really nice way of thinking about it. So whenever you have, you know, a, a sort of like a time and a value estimate on a product backlog item, you're guessing about the value and you're guessing about the time or you're guessing about the work involved. And mo- both of those might be wrong. In fact, both of them probably are wrong. It's just, are they wrong to an insignificant degree? Um, and so, you know, when you run those experiments, each sprint, you know, some of your experiments should be about is, is, is our estimate of value really true? You know, how do, how do we know that, you know, we delivered this stuff. We thought it was valuable. Was it, was it really true and get, get some feedback on that. So I guess the, the, the point about value is that it's all, you know, it kind of goes back to, it's, it's in the eyes of the customer, not in the eyes of the, of the, of the observer. But, um, so if a customer thinks it's valuable and they're willing to pay money to, to solve the problem, then it's valuable. And if, if they're, if it's, it doesn't close the satisfaction gap and they're not willing to, to pay something to have that gap closed, then it wasn't valuable. And it's, I, I think for me, when, when I put it in those terms, then, then the value discussion is really easy um, and, and uh, it gets um, less esoteric. Well,
1: um, several years ago, um, <clears throat> several years ago, um, uh, a senior level scrum master said, Patricia, can you come talk to our leadership team? Because, you know, we're doing this agile transformation and they say they care about value But we're not even sure they actually know what it is so um, could you just come and talk to them and and we'll use the measurement conversation to see what they want to measure so that we can get an insight into what they think is value right and so that was also an impetus around ebm and um i remember at that point we used to talk about so we mentioned those four key value areas as business value and thinking about business agility and we used to talk about it a lot that way. And if you think about it, um, and what Kurt was saying, we used to just talk about current value as you know, that's right now, think about the market value, and then unrealized value is future value. And I know that there are some people who talk about different types of values, but there's this notion of your, your, your ability to innovate and your time to market you might consider those as steps around efficiency. So is efficiency a value? Is that something for nonprofits? Is that something for insurance companies who don't want customers um, or who don't want people actually using their service? How do they think about that? And so there's a reason why those those things are called the KBAs, the four key value areas, because um, that's a way to think about them. But again, to think about all those things holistically, if we're actually satisfying demand. And I think, I think it's also pr- pointing to another area where we we talk about product ownership and we talk about products and um you know an understanding of the different stakeholders that we have uh will 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 cause us to think about value in different ways uh too and i think the question becomes is that actually a value conversation is that or is that just a person who's in a layer of fat and wants to participate or something like that
2: so so we i I thought you were going to go down a, a path of, you know, so Trish and I were working with this one particular organization and, and running a workshop, and we could tell almost at the big, at, from the outset, they were really struggling with what value was, and we were getting into these very esoteric conversations. And so to, to sort of get them to focus, we, we sort of stopped the conversation and said, um, try this for a second. Um, instead of asking how do you measure value, ask how do your customers measure value. And all of a sudden, oh, here was the got, exact
1: question: What do your customers want from your product? What do they use? Not, not, no. What, what do are they trying to achieve? What are they trying to achieve? Go measure that. And they were like, yeah. Oh, we have that information in our systems. Oh,
2: yeah. It, I mean, it just cut through all the, all the, all the, the sort of. Um, uh, sort of waffling and, and sort of vague discussions, because for their customers, it was very clear. It had to do with shortening the amount of time that took for them to get paid by their customers, because it, it was a, it was a, it was a sort of a SaaS application that helped them do billing. Um, so once that once that insight um, is sort of you know I mean everybody in the room agreed on that. And and all of a sudden, then the conversations completely changed about how do we get there. And so I think that's that's a useful question to ask. Is you know if if you're struggling with what's valuable, ask you know how do your how would your customers measure value or what do they consider valuable? And if you don't know that, then run some experiments to figure it out. But yeah, um, and it was
1: totally just what what do your customers want to do with that product? And then finally, it became the product. People were in there, and it goes. Oh wait! Now, now we want to talk to the the development people. We want to talk, and then what they did with the value stream is they found that like their what was holding them back was actually the sales conversation. So this was really interesting. But um, oh, we're on a another- so people don't know you made a face, James, and you might want to participate in the conversation. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, that's all. Those are all super interesting uh, kind of points, and it, and it's a, it's generally aligns with around how I, I generally talk about value um, and, and what, what we're trying to, to actually solve. It's, it's good to hear other people talk about it because, I mean, you can, I mean, the number of people I think we've had on the show that have talked about value and what it is, and it's just, it, it's <laughs> good. <laughs> so it's, sometimes it's good to have that affirmation of like the crap that you've been Is everybody
1: or- saying the same thing? or is it so are, all, are
0: we all over the damn place like just i mean if, if i hear with one more time and them being like how we really that's that's real value or we ran into um who's steve mcconnell steve mcconnell's guy uh john clifford i don't want to talk bad about consultants on the podcast but like putting relative points for the value of something and then like he he goes on the relative point matrix and then you go across and oh, look, it's here on this grid and it's here on this spot. This, these two are different. They're, they're, this one's way more important. And I'm like, John, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard about talking about value. Like this customer, he cares about does his electronic health record show up? Can he easily get it? Can more of these forms pre-fill so that the nurse practitioner that's coming in to take the patient's blood pressure doesn't have to fill in the same data on 88 screens, and at some point in time he screwed it up, which then reported to my my uh, JPMC health insurance wellness screening that Cigna going to screw up. Now I have now I didn't get my extra 500 bucks on my freaking FSA <laughs> because uh,
1: yeah yeah yeah
0: we were focused on the wrong dang thing. Now and that's <laughs> but that's the reality of like the the magic
1: eight ball didn't tell you that did it the magic eight ball was like nope three no
0: (laughs) but it's so like there's just a lot of just people out there just talking about this stuff in totally random ways that really just confuse people and then like i end up finding myself trying to clean this up and get people into a better better situation when they're talking about actual value
1: i might Um, i want to add this like because you talked about the framing which was really important and one of the things we looked at which really from an EBM lens when you think about the kbas and the experiments that they have to run but um in germany there was this whole thing about vaccination right and so covid uh no it wasn't about the vaccine it was they they set up um an app contact
2: contact tracing yeah
1: contact tracing and they were doing that and they were saying okay when 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 we have that so if you go to a restaurant we're going to know if there's an exposure great you know sign up for that and they were, they were having such success with people signing up, the government invested millions of euros into it. Guess what happened? Security breach. So now we have another opportunity. There's a quality problem. And that becomes this notion of, should we close that? So that's unrealized value, right? That we have a problem. We obviously, we wanna know um, as you know people on the street about, about contact tracing and all those things, but we don't want our data out there for everybody potentially. Um, so that's another thing to think about, like what you're saying of all the all the framing of how we have to think about things and can we do that? What's the cost? Is the experiment? Did we just anonymize the data? How do, how does that work?
0: Awesome. awesome. Well, I want to be mindful of your guys' time. It is late, except for Kurt, it's like early evening. He's got hours of drinking left time to do. Um, I'm just kidding. Yeah.
1: As as do we. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, I,
0: I mean, I turned into a pumpkin at 11. So I really appreciate you guys talking, bringing, bringing this topic to the show. Um, I always enjoy talking to, you, to the folks at Scrum.org. You've got a great group of people um, kind of running around down there or up there or everywhere now.
2: Wherever, wherever we are now. Yeah.
0: So we're in, we're in the cloud now. <laughs> you're, you're on AWS too? <laughs> awesome. Uh, so I really appreciate you guys um, kind of coming on if there, is there, you know we'd like to give you guys an opportunity if you if you got anything going on anything you'd like to plug if people want to connect with you where could they find you I'll we'll just kind of wrap it up there because I could talk to you guys for literally hours uh, and I'm sober tonight which is not a usual thing for a podcast <laughs> but
1: well you but should maybe the- do another one where we have happy hour and do a real uprising of topics. Okay. <laughs> i'm very
2: I, good at that I, I i it reminds me of a of something that oscar wilde said he said i, I drink to make other people more interesting <laughs> um, <laughs> so so uh, maybe that's um they so i think the main thing for me is that we have this free guide to evidence based management you can find it at scrum.org um pretty easy read you know less than 20 pages um and you know references some other blogs and other you know we've got some you know case studies and other blogs and supporting material but you know read the guide um you know see if it resonates with with you um and not you but but you know just the the listeners um maybe try out some of the ideas uh you know just just get started i mean that's one of our things is that you know you don't have to boil the ocean to use this you know you can get started by just um kind of thinking about your goals and trying to think about you know how would you know if you achieve those goals and that that's a good starting point for the conversation and see where it goes so you know try it um and hopefully you know you'll you'll get something out of it and and then you know we we, you can reach out to us at scrum.org and and you know if you have questions comments suggestions just you know clarifications um so I, I guess that's my, my ask or, or suggestion is that just, you know, learn more about it if it uh, sounds interesting.
1: Yeah. Um, so if people want to talk more um, or hit us up talking about EBM or Enterprise Agility or leadership or those things, we're, we're both available on LinkedIn. Um, they can ask questions there. Um I think for me, it's also check out the guide, but there's, we're an information radio. So there's, there's, um, not to drive people off your podcast, but like I just recorded a session about ask us anything about EBM. So we just took a field of questions. Uh, we have webinars on the scrub.org website where I talked about the OKR and EBM, how we did that with, um, how we did that with, um, um, some clients in Asia Pacific. And then, um, Because we're having this conversation about EBM where people can start to think about what value is, Kurt and I are interested in looking at, now that you know that, how would we invest for it? How do you start thinking about that from the flip side of the coin, Uh, which is an important conversation. And then we're just interested in in some conversations about leadership and power and organizations and stuff like that status quo. So that's cool stuff.
0: Um, So thanks again to our guests, Patricia Kong and Kurt Bittner. And to you, our listening audience, if you've enjoyed this episode, please give us a review and rating and leave a comment on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcasting platform of choice. It really helps us. It really helps others find us. If this is your first time tuning in, um, why don't you subscribe to our podcast? And we used to have a Discord Discord server it's still out there and you can find that at coalition.agileuprising.com. There's a lot of great articles and content that people wrote out there, but really right now, if you want to come to the the live action, come find us on discord uh, and you can, and we'll be a link in the show notes for that. Um, And if you like what you're hearing and you want to support us, you know, we try to keep this podcast free for everybody. Uh, We do have a Patreon and you can find that in the show notes too. So, with that, I'm James, and we're signing off on the Agile Uprising podcast. Have a great sometime in your day.